The text for the sermon this day is taken from these words, 1 Corinthians 8. It says, Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is the text. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Those words might have some level of familiarity on account of the fact that they are expressed in the Nicene Creed. But it confronts a very important commandment. Well, the first commandment. So, think back to your confirmation days. Some of you, that is more recent than others. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? We fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now that first commandment, there are two ways that it is broken. There are two ways that we make idols. We make many gods. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. In Corinth, they were the home to the temple, the goddess Aphrodite. So there were many who worshipped Aphrodite, and there was food sacrificed to this idol. And so the question was, should we eat it? So that was their immediate concern of idolatry within Corinth. And all throughout the Greco-Roman world, there was many different gods that they were worshipping. Our own culture... In 21st century America, there are indeed many false idols. We say that there is one God and one Lord. Which, by the way, Paul is echoing a verse from Deuteronomy. A verse that every single Hebrew child knew by heart. It was known as the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Every single Jew is required to know that by heart in Hebrew and English, if you're an American. It is a confession that there is only one God, and yet we live in a world in the midst of many gods. There is Islam. The God, is, the God they praise is Allah, and no, he is not the same God as the Christian God. Even though there are many popular people, even popes, who have said so. They are not the same God. Is there history in common between Christianity and Islam? Yes. There is connection in our history, but that does not mean we worship the same God. As far as they are concerned, Jesus was a prophet. He was not God in the flesh. Because they argued that God would never, ever let himself become so weak as being a human being. And he most certainly wouldn't let him die. Islam prizes strength. Christianity prizes humility. 
There are religions such as Hinduism, one of the largest religions of the world. They have a multitude of gods. You have Buddhism, which, by the way, Buddhists are not actually theists. They are actually atheists. A Buddhist believes there is no God, and the goal of the world is to eliminate suffering. There are many, many religions, and of course, in our own day and age, the fastest growing faith in the United States is the non-religious, those who hold to no religion at all, which, by the way, their God is most likely themselves. And yet, there are Christians who are so tempted, they see that there are so many different religions, and they decide to become universalists. In fact, what the other Lutheran church body, one of their celebrity preachers who has been featured at their national youth gatherings, she is very prominent as claimed that all faiths are saved. You don't need to be a Christian to be saved, she argues. And to give an even more, there was a preacher named Rob Bell, who one time he was on MSNBC, and he was, which, in case you don't know, MSNBC is pretty much the most liberal news network there is. He was once on there, and so they're definitely not friends of Christians. And so he's, he was on there and basically saying that there is no hell, you don't have to believe in God, which the Credit to the MSNBC journalist who kind of calls him out and says, then why be a Christian at all if anybody could be saved? Christianity is not actually about avoiding suffering. The promise of being a Christian is that you will suffer in this world. Different from every other, from many other religions. Why become part of a religion that leads to suffering if there are other routes? And more especially, why did the apostles willingly suffer and die in the way that they did if there was another way? Why was it on the day of Pentecost when, Paul, when Peter stood tall and said that you crucified this man and they said, what must we do to be saved? Why did he say, well, you're all saved. He didn't say that. He said, call on the name, Je believe in the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. But in our culture, we want the easy route. We want to claim that all religions lead to salvation. We want to say that Jesus came to show us the way, something that I've heard a preacher say before. Or they want to say that Jesus is a way, a truth, a life, rather than the way, the truth, and the life. But that's not the only idolatry in our country, in our world. The much more common one. Now, if you happen to have the Congregation of Prayer, you could actually read this. It's from Luther's large catechism, which we as... So I don't know if you know how the catechisms work. But the way confirmation is actually supposed to be done is parents are actually supposed to be coming on Wednesday nights, not their kids. Parents are actually supposed to come on Wednesday nights to learn the large catechism 
so they could go home and teach their kids the small catechism. We've got it way backwards over the last couple hundred years. But anyways, the large catechism, this is what Luther says about the first commandment. He says, this point I must unfold more clearly. It may be understood and seen through ordinary counterexamples. Many a person thinks that he has a God in everything in abundance when he has money and possessions. He trusts in them and boasts about them with such firmness and assurance as to care for no one. Such as a person has a God by the name of Mammon, on which he sets all his heart. This is the most common idol on earth. He who has money and possessions feels secure and is joyful and undismayed as though he were sitting in the midst of paradise. On the other hand, he who has no money doubts and is despondent as though he knew of no God. For very few people can be found who are of good cheer and who neither mourn nor complain if they lack mammon. This care and desire for money sticks and clings to our nature right up to the grave. So too, whoever trusts and boasts that he has great skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, and honor also has God. See, that's the second and the much more common idolatry amongst Christians. You might be, remember a story where Jesus was, taught, was confronted by this rich young man. And the man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And so Jesus, Jesus said, what are the commandments? And he said, well, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes to the commandments. He says, I kept the, all these I've kept since my youth. Which probably he really didn't, but he wants to convince himself that he did. And so Jesus said, Give, there's one thing that you lack. Take everything you own and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. And the man goes away sad because he was of great wealth. Now one of the errors that many people want to go to and say, see, you have to give everything away in order to be saved. Which, by the way, that means we're all in big trouble. Because in case you don't know, every single person in this room, compared to the rest of the world, is wealthy. If you're an American, you are wealthy compared to the rest of the world, in general. I mean, the average, average yearly income for the world is less than $2,000 a year. In the United States, that'd be extreme poverty. So that tells you how, we're all wealthy. But the reason he was telling them this the reason Jesus put this test was because this man was given a choice. He could have Satan or he could have his possessions. What did he choose? His possessions. Jesus was pointing to his idol. His idol was what mammon, as Luther called it. What is the root of all evil? Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil, as John writes. We will do, we will become, as said, we become despondent if we don't have possessions. We will, do, we will come up with ways to keep it, to get it back. 
It is our most common idol. But Luther even includes skill, prudence, power, favor, friendship, and honor. There was a video I was going to play, and I decided not to do that. But there was a, the video show, this video from the Skit Guys, and it's kind of a nice little one, pointing to one of our favorite idols in the 21st century. And that is the idol of sports. Now, in and of themselves, sports is a good... And by the way, every, most of the idols of the world, these idols, like the idols of mammon, the idols of sports, success, obviously friendship, are all good things. But see, the devil, he is so sneaky, he knows exactly how to take those good gifts of God and turn them into an idol and make them a bad thing in our lives. And so... For example, sports. How many, of, how many, if they had a chance to have a day out on the golf course or be in church, choose the golf course or out fishing? Or how about this? And this is something that came up this last week. I have a group of pastors on Facebook. It's called the Facebook Winkle. And there's about 400 Lutheran pastors in this group. And every now and then we just talk about frustrations in ministry and challenges and, and good things too. But one of the things that came up was the pastor was very frustrated because one of his, one of his confirmation students was not going to be able to make it a confirmation because of some sports activity that was going on that same night. What, an, what a good example of idolatry. In our, and, this, and the thing is, is one of the things we find in small communities, ironically, it is worse of an idol than in big communities. So I grew up in Ankeny. In Ankeny, we did not have a church night. But because there were, we have 1,200 students, there are a lot of people that weren't in sports because it's like, all I'm going to do is sit on the bench. Might as well go get a job instead. And so not everybody was in activities. In small school districts, because there are only so many students, in order to make sure you have all the activities, a much higher percentage of the students are very active. And this is a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. As you know, I go to a lot of it. I attend a lot of activities. So there's nothing wrong with the activity in and of themselves. But when you get, when it comes to a point where you are asked to choose between nurturing your spiritual life and nurturing your athletics, which one wins? If they run at the same time, which one are you going to do? Very rare is the faith chosen first. And yes, that's talking to youth, but that's to parents that enable it. That allow child to, to choose their, fit, their athletic development over their faith development. And the thing is, you think, what's the big deal? As long as they believe. But do you understand, remember, the demons believe that there is a God and they shudder. 
You don't have, it's not just that you believe in God, it's that you have faith in him. You trust him. That means that you spend time, you learn in him, you grow in him. And the reality is, is that every single one of our kids are going to enter into a world where their faith is constantly challenged. When you go to college, the number of people who are actually truly Christian is pretty much right around 10% on your average public university. Your faith will either be absent or very, very much challenged. In fact, I just had a conversation the other week with the campus pastor at UNI, and he expressed it is a one of a battle fighting against the ideas that the UNI professors are putting into the students. It is a one battle to keep make sure that they come out of college still a Christian. Do your kids, are your kids going to enter into college with the tools to defend their faith? Or are they going to walk out where Jesus is not their one Lord, but they're serving another? Because they spent their whole life being taught it is secondary. There is one Lord and one God. You know, every single sin comes down to that one Every single sin. And remember the Ten Commandments. Again, going back to your confirmation. Whenever we say, what does this mean? What are always the first, two, first words? We fear and love God so that. Because every single sin boils down to we failed to fear and love God in some way. Which, by the way, is why we come to this place again and again. It is why we need Christ. Because we are sinners, we are wretched, we are broken. And so he calls us to his throne of grace. And he shows our Lord, our Lord, who spoke all of creation, all of existence. He shows his hands, he shows his wounds. You see the cross. He gives you his body and blood in the supper. He points to the waters of baptism in which you are clothed in him. And he shows that you are forgiven. You have received a righteousness that is not your own. When you were unable to save yourself, when you are even unable to worship Christ of your own authority, of your own power, when you were complete and absolute rebellion, he went down and he grabbed you by the collar, pulled you, saved you, redeemed you, washed you of every sin, forgiven you of every single one. And the reason why our God is so incredibly awesome compared to every other God or idol, so-called idol in our world, is that they always demand more, more, more. Christ calls you so he can keep giving you more, more, more. He gives you everything. He gives you his very self that you may have the kingdom, that you may have eternity. 
And so it is our prayer that as we go throughout our weeks, that he would strengthen us, enable us to always look upon him as Lord. And look upon those things such as being an athlete, your possessions, all of these things in your life, that they are not our God, but rather they all exist to serve our God. How are you using your possessions, your hobbies, your time to serve him? To him be all glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who calls you, saves you, and sends you. Keep in the one true faith to life everlasting. Amen.